This is Living Forever, Not an Option, a podcast brought to you by Care Dimensions, a provider of hospice, palliative care, and support services in Massachusetts. Your hosts are Lynn Skarmis and Mary Crow. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Living Forever, Not an Option, with your hosts, Lynn Skarmis and Mary Crow. Unfortunately, Lynn is unable to join us today, but she'll be back for future episodes. As you know, we're from Care Dimensions, an organization that is well-respected in Massachusetts and beyond for providing the highest quality hospice, community palliative care, and support services to patients and families throughout Eastern Mass. So let's move on to today's topic. It's a good one. Today, we are so pleased to have Claire Willis with us. She is the author of Opening to Grief. Claire, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Mary. Well, this is such an important topic, Claire. I'll tell you, Claire and I were just talking about just how passionate we are about this subject, and it's so important that we're able to reach people to address this. So just so glad to have you here. So tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Well, I've been working in the field of oncology for about 25 or 30 years, and I have a special interest in end of life, working with people who are living with life-threatening illness, therapeutic writing, and bereavement. I'm especially interested in bereavement. I have two children and three granddaughters who are the love of my life, and I co-founded an organization that's based in the Boston area. We don't actually have an office now because everything is Zoom, called Facing Cancer Together, which offers support, free support services to people living with cancer and those who are grieving from people who lost people to cancer, as well as caregivers. Wow, that's great, Claire. Can they can people find that online? Uh, we have a website facing cancer together. Okay, very good. Excellent. Yes. That's important that people know that. So that is great. Well, again, just so happy to have you here. So I'm so interested because I, I love this book. I have read it more than once now. Uh, and I have just every time I just take something more from it. It's just really just so rich with information about grief, but also resources too, which I loved about it. So what I really am interested to tell me what motivated you to write this book? Well, I, I grew up in a family where grief was not expressed and it actually wasn't even tolerated. And at the same time, it sat very heavily in my home and in the hearts of my family members. Each of my parents experienced suicides with a sibling and an in-law. My father had to identify both the bodies and never was able to talk about it. There was so much unspeakable sorrow in my family. And I could feel as I grew older and went to social work school, I could feel how it dampened down the life force in my family and each of us. Right, right now, I have a sister who's very sick with cancer and the only way she knows how to express her grief about losing her life is through anger and rage. So I think that's the personal reason I wrote the book. Professionally, I came into this, I think, in part to try and help make the lives of other people different through allowing or encouraging the expression of grief. And I run bereavement groups at Facing Cancer Together. And one of the repeating questions I hear all the time is, am I grieving right? Will this ever end? Will I always feel this way? How am I going to get through the holidays? And so the, the shame and self-criticism that seems to swirl often through people grieving too much, I'm grieving too little, I'm not expressing it right. I wanted to normalize all those feelings. I wanted to 
normalize grief, take it out of from being under the covers and secrecy. The privatization of pain, I think, makes our grief much harder. So I wanted to open that up. And I often hear people in my group say things like, I would only say this here. And to me, that's such a sad statement because too often our grief swirls with shame, criticism, not doing it right too long. I struggle with this myself. Last year, on March 1st, I lost my beloved pet companion, my dog. And 10 days later, COVID came and I had wanted so much to gather friends together to talk about the loss of the dog. And I didn't, it was very hard for me to do it because I felt the losses that were happening in the culture were so big that what was the loss of my dog? (laughs) And so I really struggled with that shame myself. So in a way you could say, I wrote this book for myself and I'm hoping it <laughs> benefits other people, but I know I know the internal conflicts that can get generated around shame. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk more about this because I think this is important. There are so many points that you bring up and that you just even said in those few sentences about grief and some of those mis- misconceptions about grief, some of the, the, the social you know, uh, really how, how people are approaching this. So I think that, that, you know, this is really hard because I think sometimes people do, they try to hide it. They don't want to talk about it. It's so painful. So let's talk some more about that. Some of the issues around and that, that you bring up around this in terms of grief. Well, there's a lot of cultural assumptions about what appropriate grief looks like. And a lot of them are really myths. They, they, they don't support the process of grief. So one of the cultural assumptions is in, in, at work, people get three or four days off following the death, which just shows you right there that a lot of people don't recognize the gravity and the impact of grief on people who have lost who are experiencing losses. The idea that grief needs to be fixed, that it's a problem versus Grief is just a natural response to loss of any kind. That grief has a timeline is another assumption that our culture uh, has, that it progresses in a linear way. And, and I want to emphasize that there are absolutely no stages. Often the assumption is that the first year is the hardest. Well, for many people, the second and third year are harder because in the first year, when we lose somebody, we're in, embroiled in closing their life and the material aspects of their life, of probating the will of, you know, all those things. And then after we've coped with that, we start to deal with the impact of the loss. So sometimes the the full catastrophe of our loss doesn't occur to us until the second year or the even the end of the first year. I think another cultural assumption, which is very oppressive, is that most people think grief is sadness, sorrow, despair, hopelessness. But actually, it doesn't look a certain way, and it has as many expressions as there are people who are grieving. So I think a common way is anger, impatience, rage, irritability, regret. That's a big one. Gratitude, relief, numbness, Mm -hmm. forgetfulness. So I I know my sister was in the ER last night with lung cancer and she was having some internal bleeding and she was in a rage with the staff about how long it was taking to get the CAT scan results instead of being with the vulnerability of the loss of control in her body. And I think I think what my sister was doing is very common that it's easier to be angry than it is to feel the vulnerability and the helplessness of loss. And, and I think one of the things that happens in families is people will say, my siblings aren't grieving. Well, they probably are grieving, but the expression of their grief has a different presentation. And so we really need to bring compassion into the differences. 
the idea that some losses are worse than others and that there's a hierarchy of loss is really is a cultural assumption that's very bad. I like to think of it simply as all these griefs are different. The loss of a pet cannot be analogized to the loss of a partner, to the loss of a child, to the loss of a close friend. They're all different. Or the loss of a home or, or loss of friendships. Loss is loss. And there's a lot of commonalities. And then there's particularities to the kind of loss. So the idea that there's no correct way to grieve is really important. Also, sometimes people experience losses that occur as a result of the loss of the, their loved one. And those losses, while they're called secondary, can actually have a bigger impact on someone's life than the loss of the person they love. So sometimes people might lose their home. They might lose their friendship connection. They may lose a co-parent. They may lose a co-grandparent. There are many losses that swirl around the loss of a person we love, which are not less than, they're different, and they may even be more than, more difficult than the loss of the person. So I, I like to just think, I want to just read something before I end this little, this question. Sure. Yeah. Um, a quote, which I think is really important as a way to hold grief. Jamie Anderson writes, grief I have learned is really just love. It's all the love you want to give, but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. So I think I want to close this question with that because grief is not something to get over. We don't get over loving somebody. It's something we learn to hold and carry with us in new and different ways and let it shape our life and let us open ourselves more deeply to the suffering of others. And in that way, generously give back. I think that's beautifully said, Claire, I have to tell you, because, you know, it, it is so hard. It's so hard to tolerate the feelings, but it's, uh, you know, we do, we grieve deeply because we love deeply. And it's, uh, and I think that's important that people understand that. I want to talk too about, um, you know, talking about this, the concept or the term ambiguous loss. I, you know, I, I certainly have heard it. I, I've actually, I experience it. Uh, and, but I want you to talk to people about that because people, some people have heard this term and others have not. Ambiguous loss, that's sort of the technical word in literature, but I like, I like the idea of invisible losses because there are losses that we often don't code in our thinking as loss. So the feeling is that a person is neither present or absent. These are mostly non-death losses. They're more relational losses and they don't have a clear resolution. And so it's a, it's a nuanced grief that's often invisible. So let me be more specific about that. For some of us, we may know somebody who's physically present, but they are absent in your mind psychologically. So they're here, but they're not here. They're close to us. They're not deceased. So this could be people who are estranged uh, through conflict or divorce, foster care kids, incarceration, kidnapping, people who are in care facilities that we can't visit, runaways, COVID separations. There's no definite knowing of an end and these griefs can't be resolved easily. So knowing someone's physically around, but, but in, their, in our mind, they're psychologically absent. And then there's those that are psychologically absent, but physically present. So the relationship as we knew it has changed and the person we knew and loved is gone. 
And that can show itself in addictions, mental illness, autism, comas, uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these, again, are relational losses and there's no end point. There's no fixing the situation. It's a situation we just have to live with. And then there are changes that come from identity. And that can be, we can see that in the trans community where we may have a father that all of a sudden realizes that she's a woman and then our, we lose the person we knew as a father and they become perhaps another mother or a, another parent in one way or another, but they represent personality changes. And so there's a dissonance in us with the person as we knew them before. It can also be seen in people becoming a priest, religious conversions, cults, changes of political beliefs, often in substance abuse. We knew someone as a fellow drunk and then all of a sudden they're in recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's another loss. Um, those are more of the invisible losses. And I think as someone pointed out to me yesterday, aging is the process is an invisible loss because there's a gradual diminishment of capacities. And that's, you know, that physically we're here and psychologically, most of us are changing, but we're also changing physically. And th that's a loss that's very real. And we feel as we age, but there's no way the culture really holds it. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about too, this, there, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. This is so important. Uh, but let's talk about, I, I, because I feel like, you know, we're, we don't want to tiptoe around the elephant. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic, right? And certainly, um, you know, I, we see the light that there's, uh, there's hope, you know, over the horizon here. But certainly, this has been an extremely traumatic year for many. So can you talk about, you know, the impact that the pandemic has had on grief? Yeah. So um, I, I want to just mention an article that David Brooks wrote a, a year ago around April 3rd. And he wrote to his readers and he asked people how they were faring in the pandemic. And he got over 5,000 replies in three days. Wow. And what he found was that it, he talks a lot about the loneliness of older people. He talks about the broken dreams of younger people. He talked about the isolation. And, and he concludes this little article by saying, there's just a river of woe, a river of grief flowing through our culture. And I, I love the image of a river because water seeps everywhere. So I would say that all of us have experienced some losses at some level, even if it's the loss of life as we knew it in some way. And certainly we will not be returning to life as we knew it. We can't unknow what we know now. So that's a loss. There's a, an innocence that we've lost. It's a little bit like what happens with someone with cancer. A cold is never a cold again. Mm -hmm. And we will never think about life in the same terms having been through this. So having said that, uh, for many of us, there's been a loss of purpose in our life, especially if we lost work or perhaps we, we were uh, taking care of grandchildren or parents. There's a whole way that the meaning of our life has shifted. <clears throat> We've lost, certainly there have been economics losses, jobs, loss of our children being able to go to schools and socialize. Again, that sort of loss of normal life. But the thing, the other thing is that COVID has opened up any old griefs we didn't grieve. Mm -hmm. That is one of the things that happens because grief will insist on returning to be remembered and to be tended to. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us may have found that we're grieving things that we 
haven't thought about in 10 years that we thought we were done with, but in fact, we find them lingering with us. So that one of the good things I want to just say that, that uh, pandemic has been, has impacted grief is, is that it's now in the language. It's in our everyday speaking. It's in the New York times. It's in the Atlantic. It's in the NPR. It's on the radio. We're talking about it in a way that we never spoke about it before. And that is the beginning of, of coming to terms with some of the nuances, some of the more invisible griefs, and just making it part of our everyday language, which I'm really thrilled to see happen. Thank you. You know, let's talk too about there's, um, you know, there's a quote that you quoted, Henry. Is it Nguyen? Nguyen. Nguyen, okay. Nguyen. A, a friend that can be silent with us in a moment of despair and confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement who can tolerate not knowing, not healing, not curing, that is a friend who cares. What a beautiful quote. And I'll tell you, you know, and I, I know that in conversations with Lynn about this very topic too, you know, it is hard, right? And, and I know from a healthcare perspective, we do want to fix things, don't we? We want to make <laughs> things better. Uh, and there's just things that can't be fixed, aren't there? So, you know, and, and, you know, Lynn and I were talking and she said, you know, why is this so hard for us to do, to not be fixers and doers all the time? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think the, the word fixer actually even suggests that there's a problem, right? That there's something that has to be done. Yep. So Rachel Remen has a wonderful article called, you may know this, Helping Fixing Serving. And she says, when we're offering help, we're assuming the other person doesn't have the capacity inside themselves. When we're fixing, we're assuming there's something wrong. And she says, the question is, how can we be of service to the other person, to this person who's grieving? So I, I think what I wanna say about this is that one of the biggest gifts we can offer one another is to begin to sit with and tolerate our own grief. If we cannot tolerate our own grief, we aren't gonna be able to sit and listen to another person talk about their grief. And I think one of the things that often happens for people who are grieving is that they lose their what they thought was their close network of friends. People who haven't experienced deep grief disappear and people come forward who they consider old strangers, but they're there in a new way. So the fact that we have to fix often suggests to me that we can't sit with the feelings that person is sitting with that it's too uncomfortable. That, and we offer platitudes often that are well-meaning, but not helpful. And so the, the biggest thing we can offer someone is to just sit and be with them. In fact, I, I, what I'd like to do, Mary, is to just talk about some helpful things to say to someone who has experienced a traumatic loss or grief. Oh, because I guess often what happens is we say, I'm so sorry about your loss. And that's an overworn, overspoken words that aren't always helpful. It can feel like a platitude, I think sometimes, and it's always well-meaning, but it's it doesn't help. And I think one of the things to do is to offer, I, I would love to hear about John as much as you'd like to talk to him. Let's sit and remember together, or there are no words. Let me just sit with you. Mm -hmm. Or you can talk about your mom whenever you want. Now, in five years, 10 years, I'll always be there to listen. Or your grief is so normal and appropriate. I completely understand why you feel this way. You aren't going crazy. <laughs> Tell me more about them. So 
enrolling yourself as a witness, as someone who will sit with and be present to another person's pain and making that clear through language is really an important gift. And it's not a gift that everybody can give. And I think we can only give it if we're comfortable with our own grief. Yeah, that's well said. Thank you so much. Yeah. Talk, talk, if you will, about this term in, you know, that I read in this book, and I found it very, very important, the term meta, and how meditative practice can be helpful at a time of intense suffering. Meta means basically loving kindness, or it also means tender friend. And meta is a meditation practice that's actually a mindfulness practice that can be really helpful at a time of suffering. It's a way of uh, offering yourself self-blessings. And I love this practice. It's really a practice of kindness. And so they're they're just short phrases where we offer ourselves self-blessings. So I'll just give you an example of some of of the uh, phrases that we use in the first chapter. May I welcome all my feelings as I grieve. May I allow grief to soften and strengthen my heart. May I hold my sorrow with tenderness and compassion. So one of the reasons that uh, meditation practice is really important when we're suffering is that it's very easy to catastrophize the future. It's very easy to ruminate about the past. Mm -hmm. And there's been some research that suggests that 50% of the time our minds are in the future, 40% of the times our mind is in the past, And on a very good day, our mind is where our body is. So one of the things that meditation helps with, it it helps to manage our thoughts that are not going to serve us to notice them and come back to the present moment. And one of the ways that we all can do that is just by breathing, Mm -hmm. by keeping our mindfulness, being mindful of our breath you are in the present moment. And it also helps to slow down these thoughts. And I think so much fear accompanies uh, grief. And it's so easy to ruminate and let our minds run away from what's happening in the moment and catastrophize. And so I think of meditation practice and mindfulness practices as being a wonderful gateway to the mind to keep away what isn't gonna serve us and to get control and, and manage what will serve us in our thinking. Absolutely. It can help us really in general. I mean, and then certainly through situations like the pandemic or even through our grief, as you're talking about, it's really a useful in all areas of our lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. excellent. Um, so, you, you know, another thing that you talk about in the book, too, is about nature. So how can nature be a source of healing? Well, you know, as as human beings, we have, we're instinctively bond and affiliate with other life forms. And I love this, this analogy of we're like moths drawn to light. We live in a really fast moving culture. We're very technologically focused. We're often tied to our electronics, even when we're outside and we, we carry handheld devices. I certainly know this myself as much as I know I shouldn't. And Rachel and Stephen Kaplan talk about this concept of restorative environments where if we can find quiet outdoor spaces like a garden or a city park, or even just if you're confined to indoors feeling, looking out at the sky. When we are outside, our eyes aren't focused. Our eyes are in a receptive mode. There's a softness and a receptivity to our gaze where we're drawn into what's out there. There's nothing to do. And so nature can also connect us more deeply to ourselves. The seasons remind us of the renewal of life. 
the, 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 the winter, fall is certainly a time of dying. Winter is a time of stillness. Spring is a time of reemergence and new life. And summer is the flourishing. So we, have, we are reminded in nature that everything is impermanent, both the good and the bad, that this is just the law of life. In Canada, one of the things that they're doing is they're doing walking groups where people who are grieving walk together. There's no advice giving, there's no consulting, there's just people name the name of the person they lost, they name when they died, and then they walk together one step at a time, and they usually seek out beautiful places. And it's been very healing for people doing that. What a wonderful idea. Yeah, I, I could see where that would be healing for people, and it just is such a great idea. Can you talk to talk about too um, your use of poetry in your work with the bereaved and why you use it? Yeah, each chapter um, begins with, or most chapters begin with a poem, and we've chosen very accessible poetry. And one of the things about poetry versus prose is that poetry goes right to the heart. It doesn't go through our head. We're not thinking about it. And also the use of metaphor can be very, very powerful. And we know when we're reading a poem that resonates with us, that we know the author has walked that walk. And so often a poetry poem can be like a companion in our grief because we know that it's someone who has done gone where they have in order to reach us in the way they have through the poetry. So it often captures the depth of a loss and can often offer comfort and solace as well as beauty and pleasure. So just here's a three line poem that I love. And the, the, the metaphor is wonderful. Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. That poem is called Separation by W.S. Merwin. Wow. I'll just read it again. Yeah. Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Wow, that's powerful. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I'd like to read another poem if I Please might. Do. Um, yes. There's also a poem by Mary Oliver called In Blackwater Woods that is often read at funerals. And I, I don't want to read the whole poem, but I want to just say for memory, <laughs> such as it is, <laughs> the last three lines of the poem, because I think it's so beautiful. In order to live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones as if your life depended on it. And when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. Wow. Now, those are words of someone that knows grief. Sure. She knows grief. She had a horrible childhood and her she's very open about what she went through and her poetry, some of it comes out of that. So I'd like to just read one more poem or yes, an, no. excerpt, an excerpt from one more poem called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. And I think... Being kind to ourselves when we're grieving is the most important gift we could give ourselves and give those around us. So Shihab Nye writes, before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. 
only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So that's why I use poetry. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that about the book, because again, that's what I was talking about in terms of resources. And you don't always find this is that, you know, you had so much wonderful information about grief in there. You do have that in there, but you also have poems and you have resources. And I thought that was just a, just a wonderful contribution uh, to offer people with this book. Thank you. Yeah, I I feel it's important. And there's a lot of people that don't like poetry, but every poem in that book is easy to understand. Yeah, no, it was really, it was a wonderful addition. You know, so I know we're going to wrap up in a minute, but I just want to ask you, Claire, because again, I I really encourage people, uh, you know, all people, you know, those who, and like you say, all of us are grieving, you know, something or another, but I encourage people to, to certainly uh, take a look at your book, Opening to Grief. It's wonderful. And and I find it very healing in a lot of ways. And uh, so certainly they they should do that. And uh, again, you had mentioned your group that you have. And if you want to mention that again. Facing Cancer Together is located in the, well, it doesn't matter where we're located. We're located on Zoom now, but we offer bereavement services, caregiving groups of people who are caregivers, support groups for people living with cancer, therapeutic writing groups. We have art groups. We have a variety of services and our services are all free of charge. So feel free to contact us if that feels like something that you could benefit from. That's wonderful. Claire, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Living Forever, Not an Option. And Lynn and I will look forward to all of you in the audience uh, tuning into other episodes. Claire, thank you again for being on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you. Thank you. Same here. Thanks for listening to Living Forever, Not an Option with Lynn Skarmis and Mary Crow. To learn more about Care Dimensions, please visit our website at www.caredimensions.org or check out our podcast website at www.caredimensions.org backslash podcast. We would love to hear from you with questions or comments. Please feel free to email us at podcast at caredimensions.org And of course, you can always call our office at any time. The number is 888-283-1722.